So I've got a question for you. What are some unlikely team-ups that we haven't seen that you would love to see? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, are we talking about pop culture characters? Are we talking about actors? Are we talking about... It, it, it Sky's the limit. Types, actors, real-life personages. Okay, I'll give you an example. Go so ahead. there's two that are on my mind. Uh, number one, Ronald McDonald forced to team up with that healthy food chef, Jamie Oliver. You know, they're they're diametrically opposed, but maybe there's a bigger enemy that they have to face. Um, and I mean, I think that it's about time that, that we got the Ronald McDonald movie, obviously. Uh, I think, you know, you know, remember that Burger King King with the plastic face? That would also be an unlikely team up. The Burger King King and Ronald McDonald. Well, I was going to say the Burger King King could definitely be a, uh, like a, um, a comedic relief of like, he's always sneaking in and, and meddling around, but the, the things that he does doesn't really disturb the plot. It's just like minor inconveniences. He's just like, he's like a trickster, but he's just an ineffective one. Yeah. Like just pranks that he finds funny. Like, Oh, you got mud on your nose. <laughs> and then he runs away. I I like that. And then, okay. So here's my other team up idea. Go ahead. The unlikely team up. Remember, this has to be unlikely. Right. Greta Thunberg and the Fast and the Furious gang. Yeah. Because they've never cared about sustainability in their vehicles, but Greta's going to make them care. Yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah, like the the idea of racing the big gas guzzler versus the electric vehicle the tesla right like vin diesel is you know a reluctant adopter but eventually he comes to see that the future is one brave teenage girl right um the the only thing i can really think of off the top of my head that's a good satisfying answer i think is i always thought it would be fun if the gremlins and the critters teamed up but in oh, like Alien versus Predator or Kong versus Godzilla, except Critters versus Gremlins, and then they unite against a common foe. But they don't unite against a common foe. They kind of just are both out to cause the most chaos. <laughs> like they don't really fight each other. They're just kind of like, this is our town. Like they both show up to the same town and they're like, listen, we just love having fun. So if you destroy half our city then that's not fun. So they kind of like, I don't know. Then they do maybe have to team up to like destroy the whole city. Mm. But I like that. That's a very chaotic, neutral answer. Yeah. I I always loved, I mean, gremlins are great, but I always love the critters and just how like their little personalities and they're just, they're so funny. Like yeah, anything just with like, puppets. Yeah, they just like causing mayhem. I like that. I like that. Kind a lot. of, kind of, like Dennis Farina and Bette Midler. <gasps> oh, nice segue. <laughs> well, let's get into these team ups. High five.
Necromancer. Necromancer. I'm Shira, and I'm a rom-com fan. I'm Brett, and I'm a horror movie fan. What do we do here, Brett? Well, each week we pick a movie, you pick a rom-com, I pick a horror, and then we watch and review those movies, and then we remix the movies, we pitch the rom-com as a horror, and the horror is a rom-com, and it's... I was going to try to make a that old feeling joke. And it's a great (laughs) old feeling. It's a great old feeling. And it's great to be back talking about sex and death with you. Yeah. The two, the two tent poles of rom-com and horror. It really is sex, Sex death and taxes. (laughs) Uh, So this week, as you may have guessed, our theme is unlikely team ups. Yeah, and this is a, a a distinction between unlikely pairings. I know that when I suggested unlikely team-ups, well, first of all, I really wanted to watch Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> yeah, so we should preface this that this, this episode really started with your strong and insatiable desire to put Ghosts of Mars back in your eyeballs again. Yeah, so I really wanted to watch Ghosts of Mars, and I was like, I, I'm really big into to like I, I think space exploration is. Who cares about saving Earth, Greta Thunberg? We need to we need to go to Mars. <laughs> Earth is beyond fire. Earth is beyond saving. Let's go to Mars. So I like Mars. I like all the stuff having to deal with Mars, and I like ancient civilization conspiracies, and maybe Earths are really from Mars, and I don't know, all that stuff is goofy. So I like Mars, but unfortunately, it turns out that while there are a handful of horror movies that take place on Mars, most of, most of which are not good, there's no rom-coms. It is not a setting for rom-coms. I mean, there. I found one Martian movie um, with uh, that that cute little British boy, Asa Butterfield, or, or whatever his oh, name yeah. is. And he plays a Martian who, because he was raised on Mars, he is incapable of surviving on Earth. But of course, he falls in love with an Earthling, and but it's you know more of a you know, capital R romance melodrama, right. uh, and and that's not what we're looking for here. So I, when you did un, well, first of all, when you said Ghosts of Mars, I was completely stumped for what <laughs> kind of theme this movie was going to fit. You know, I actually thought for a while of maybe suggesting possession to you because there are multiple romantic comedies where people are either possessed, swap bodies, you know, there's a lot of this happened. And and I thought, well, could we do this for possession? But then I thought, well, never talked about The Exorcist. We've never talked about any of the amazing possession horror movies that are out there. So I thought, you know, maybe we'll keep that one in the pocket uh, for later because there's a lot of great options for us. So then when you proposed unlikely team-ups and and uh, made it distinct from unlikely pairings, I was thinking, man, how am I going to find a movie <laughs> and you that matches this? You suggested a handful of movies that I was like, I mean, that's like, it was hard to, to distinct between the unlikely team-up and unlikely pairing. But also I do want to stress that unlikely is heavily put in quotes <laughs> right because most unlikely idea- <laughs> team-ups are likely in movies right because the idea of a cop and a bad guy teaming up is 
as old as cinema itself. Yeah, um, I have yeah. I have comments and questions about that when we when we do Ghosts of Mars. But you know, kind of fortunately, a movie that did pop into my mind that I remember watching all the time when I was a kid. Shout out to Carol, <laughs> my mom, who introduced me to this movie. That old feeling, because it does feature an unlikely team up between the daughter of a celebrity and a paparazzo, which you know, really, I think it it hits the mark for the assignment. And I'm so glad that I remembered this movie because it was a delight. Yeah. And I mean, when you told me about this movie and you're like, yeah, daughter teams up with a paparazzi. I was like, yeah, that sounds just like what I, what I was looking for, like that distinction. Mm -hmm. But then you were like, Dennis Farina and Bette Midler directed by um, Carl Reiner, Carl Reiner. And I was like, what? How have I never heard of this movie? Like, how has this totally gone under my radar? I had never even heard of it. That's kind of the same for both these movies, right? Because obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, it's very likely that you've heard of John Carpenter. Right. Um, But I did not watch Ghosts of Mars when it came out. I, you know, you know, as 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 much of a fan I am of John Carpenter's work, yeah, I had not heard of that movie at all. Uh, it totally flew under my radar. Um, so I think both of these movies kind of have that distinction of being kind of the the little known works of famous directors. Yeah, there you go, another theme. Mm-hmm. Deep cuts, director deep cuts. We should do deep cuts sometime. I think that would be fun. Uh, so. The eternal question for the first part of every theme, which movie should we do first? I honestly could go either way because I have a crap ton to say about Ghosts of Mars. And I don't have as much to say about that old feeling, but I had a blast with that old feeling. So I I feel like both ways are good. Like I could get the, the analysis brain out of the way and then go to fun brain or i can just relax with the fun brain and then warm up and then boom go into super analysis mode let's do analysis and then fun i mean me being me they're virtually identical but uh (laughs) but i yeah let's get into the analysis because i also i mean i don't have as many things to say about uh ghosts of mars as i would about that old feeling Uh, I mean, that's really just the nature of this podcast, right? We have a lot more references and touchstones when we're watching movies that are in the genre that we're a fan of. But I think that we're going to have a very interesting discussion about Ghosts of Mars. So also in keeping up with podcast necromancer tradition, my rom-com remix of Ghosts of Mars is way better and more fleshed out than my That Old Feeling Horror remix. Oh, both of mine for this one are totally <laughs> crappy. And I didn't use the extra time between recordings to polish <laughs> right. these turds. I, I'm just going to I'm gonna let this shit hit the ceiling fan and go. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I always love it when you break out a great rom-com for me. I still think about your Drag Me to Hell rom-com about lesbians working at the bank. And I love it. So I'm I'm ready. I'm ready <laughs> for it. Uh, so before we get into the summary, what drew you back to Ghosts of Mars? 
I don't know exactly what. Basically, I watched this movie when it first came out, but it was on DVD because it was rated R, and I, I don't know, I couldn't go see it in the theaters, and I, I got it, I think, on Netflix, right when Netflix was still doing in mail stuff. Oh right. So I got Ghosts of Mars, and I watched it, and I was absolutely terrified by it, and. I kind of talked about this in the demons episode, but I'm really like, this is for all intents and purposes. This is a zombie movie. Right. Um, And so I always get totally freaked out by that idea of being trapped. And no matter where you go, it's just going to, deplete your resources it's just gonna trap you in a in a like they go from one cop building into another type of building and it's like yeah they go from one bigger building to a smaller building that has even less exits and whatever so i i always get creeped out by by the idea of like what next like yeah you escape the town but then what okay then they're gonna come after you so then you blow up the thing so then what well then they're gonna do this it's like no matter what you do you you there is no escape so that's why i do really like the uh the the ice cube line of like i'll tell you when the tide is high like that was a really cool moment of like yeah just live just keep on fighting and i really like all the Mars stuff. I think that the sci-fi, the mixture of sci-fi, like hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi and horror is super great. Cause the idea of the possession and the airborne virus taking over and the like, I, yeah, I like it when they kill someone in this movie and by killing them, you have now fucked yourself even more because now it's airborne and now it's gonna like, that's so creepy. That's such a creepy feeling. I do feel like this movie is like the Frankenstein monster of all the elements that you've loved in movies we've watched over time for this podcast, from hard sci-fi to unlikely team-ups to sort of this claustrophobic, backed into a corner, us against them uh, mentality. I think that pretty much as soon as the movie popped up with the text next to the red planet, the first thing, literally the first thing I wrote in my notes, Brett, is God, this is such a Brett movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's just like Escape from New York or something where like they give you all, yeah, just give me the exposition that I need right away. Okay, Mars is colonized. It's matriarchal. I don't think that really comes up at any they point. They never. Okay, so this is this is something that I want to bring up, and I was going to bring it up over the summary, but look, we'll go ahead and get this out of the way. Wikipedia's summary is very insistent on this being a matriarchal society. However, at no point does anyone say that it's a matriarchal society. And I don't think it's necessarily a matriarchal society by showing women in positions of power and authority. Maybe it's just a more equal society and producer. I think it's not Deborah Hill, but Sandy King did this one. Um, Sandy King, producer, and she's married to John Carpenter, too, right? I don't know that. But um, anyways, maybe they were looking to depict a more equal society, not necessarily a matriarchal one. Kind of a big assumption on the uh, summary contributor's part. 
Yeah, I think the the person that she talks to, the the chief, the commander that she there were men to, there, but the the head one was a lady. So I mean, that's the only thing I could think of. But there's a lot of stuff in this movie that's kind of it's way ahead of its time. Yeah, this movie is pro woman in a way that you don't really think about because it really slips it in there like a Trojan horse full of Greek soldiers. Yeah, it, you know, it, it like it's not the point of the movie, but it passes the Bechdel test like multiple times, uh, and, and nobody <laughs> nobody makes any mention of it. This is like twenty years before Birds of Prey. Yeah, I um, I mean, I know politics can be. Uh, can be decisive and and bring upon a storm of of reviews on iTunes which might be good for us but this totally reminded me of the Trump army storming the capital of just this like mob mentality of like there's no language involved right it's just shouting think- and angry and you think the, the insurrectionists are like the Martians? Yes. And it's like the cops are good guys in this movie. The thieves are good guys in this movie. And it's not about who's right or who's wrong. It's just about this mob of people who just want to incite violence for pure anger and vengeance sake. So I definitely got some like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Both I mean, of these movies are very liberal. I guess, but you did make me flash forward to the inevitable Oliver Stone Capitol riot movie, and I didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I say Oliver Stone because you know he's the guy who always wants to be the first one to make a movie about a tragedy, whether it's JFK, 9-11, or the Capitol riot. Um, yeah, I hope he writes to us. I hear like he, he likes to write to people who are his detractors. Oh, all right. All right. Um, that would be great. But yeah, let, let's go ahead and, and uh, before I digress further, let's get into the, the summary. So we're into the 22nd century that may or may not be a matriarchal society where 80 per, 84% of Mars has been terraformed. Uh, so humans can walk on the surface. They can breathe. Maybe they little, need a little help here and there. I like their little breathy. Yeah, they're camelback um, breathers. Yeah, where they they get extra sips of uh, of oxygen. So we get a frame story, which is uh, Sergeant Ballard or Police Officer Ballard talking to this female leader who we had described earlier about what happened. I don't necessarily think that this movie needed a frame story because we kind of understand what's going on from the prologue with the text. uh, And, you know, I mean, might as well get right into the action. I just, I highly disagree. (laughs) Really? You like the frame story and the dissolves. I could not like the, the constant dissolves were really getting to me. I highly disagree. But that also is like, I I think I texted you. Both of these movies are really great despite being clunky. I'll give it to you. This movie does feel clunky. However, if you're to break down the reason why they do everything they do, I think this movie is like a movie you could study in a film class. This is textbook John Carpenter horror 
um, thrill ride pumping sci-fi mystery. I think the, the idea of the train coming into the station sets us up for the fact that, yeah, these people are coming into a station to pick up a prisoner. However, we get this. We have just started there. No, no, (laughs) because the idea that we already know everything is going wrong and it's not just, we know the entire mission has gone wrong. The idea that like we jump around. So sometimes Jason Statham will leave. And then by the time Jason Statham comes back, an entire army is pursuing him. And then it's like, how did that happen? And he's like, Oh, let me flash back to, uh, J- uh, Jackie Brown, Pam Greer's head on a pike. Oh wait, I forgot that there were flashbacks inside these flashbacks. It's it's so great because what this allows the movie to do is it allows the movie to slowly ramp up the horror tension while then mega blasting you with the heavy metal fuck yeah fight scene tension. <laughs> You bring up heavy metal, and I will say, in addition to this movie being, you know, very, I think it's aggressively pro-woman without, you know, saying out loud that it's a matriarchal society, which, again, it's an egalitarian society. I do like that about this movie a lot. The other thing I like, which apparently people found intrusive, was the fucking Buckethead score. Did you know that Buckethead did the guitar for the, the music in this movie? No, I don't really know who Buckethead is. Oh, you don't know who Buckethead is? No, I'll have to look them up. Buckethead is, if you don't know, a really, really awesome guitarist uh, who has just amazing technical skills. And then his gimmick is that he wears a mask and a KFC bucket on his head, thus Buckethead. And he sort of came into the spotlight because when Slash quit Guns N' Roses, they needed a new guitarist. And one of the other band members said to um, Axl Rose, like, how about fucking Buckethead? This guy is amazing. Uh, And then, yeah, they, they brought Buckethead on. And, you know, Buckethead apparently is just like, just a dude who grew up in California, played a bunch of guitar, goes to Disneyland all the time. Um, but yeah, he's got um, insane guitar skills. And so all the uh, heavy metal shredding that you hear in the score is Buckethead. Yeah, it also looks like Anthrax did some of the, the music too. I don't know why they didn't put that more up front. Like um, demons. This movie is very demons. <laughs> I was thinking about that again when you were describing things in the beginning and, and I was trying to talk about the qualities that make this a Brett movie. Yeah. You did make me think of demons too. Dem- and demons has that like featuring music by Billy Idol and blah, blah, blah. Is it Goblin? Does uh, the demons music or no i feel like goblin Goblin does all the music for italian horror movies goblin does do a lot of the music for italian horror movies yes but i think demons has a more of a like pop culture-y soundtrack but yeah so in yeah i do get that the music is like this movie even though it's so ahead of its time not just in terms of taking place in the future but just a lot of the politics and and all that stuff I <laughs> I do movie... like that M- M- Melanie takes drugs like yeah. Ballard that, that she's got a drug like I'm very much against perfect female characters. I think that 
for me, as I've mentioned before, strong female characters help other women, which Ballard does. But another quality that I think complex female characters have is they fuck up and they make mistakes. And you wouldn't believe how many stories are unwilling to let women do that. They just let women be these sort of pure examples of, you know, these supportive people in in male protagonist life. And that's not how actual women are. And I like that she's a fuck up. Yeah. She's not so much a fuck up just as so much like, yeah, she, she's not even a drug addict. She's just someone who uses the drugs. I would say pretty casually. Right. Like I think that Pam Greer is casting judgment on her when she sees that she's using and, I, yeah. and even Jason Statham kind of notes it. And, uh, Oh, ice, uh, ice cube does too. When he's like, I can tell. Yeah. That drugs. was cool though. Yeah. When he's like, you're not, she's like, I'm a, I'm a cop. I don't, I don't steal things. And he's like, uh, you're high right now. And she's kind of like, all right, good point. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I like the music in this movie. If you kind of, sit back and remove yourself. This movie is, even though it's futuristic and it's ahead of its time, it also feels extremely dated. <laughs> like even for 2005, it feels it, like a movie that, sh- that probably would have been made in the seventies. It does feel really <laughs> dated. And I, I think I wrote at some point, I was like, why didn't they use the gladiator effect on these fight scenes you know, where uh, in Gladiator, when they kind of slow down and speed up the combat, and it's kind of a technique that I've noticed pretty much all movies tend to use now. Gladiator was like, or 300? Um, I think it started with Gladiator. Gladiator okay. walked so 300 could run. All right. Uh, I don't know if you remember how like technically different Gladiator was when it came out, um, but it was it was different. It was innovative. Um, and I thought, okay, well, maybe this movie came out before that. It came out a year later, uh, so I, I was a bit surprised at that. Um, so we've got our team of police officers that are sent on a mission to this remote mining outpost so that they can transport this prisoner, Desolation Williams, who is clearly meant to be Kurt Russell, right? But problems happened. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> well, it, he's isn't snake. This movie... He's future snake. He's got like well, the same outfit as solid snake. He's got the camo pants, but they're orange for Mars. And he's got the, the black tank tee. Right. But so wasn't this movie actually supposed to be escape from Mars, but they couldn't do it for some reason. That I actually did not look up anything about this movie. And so if I did know that it would have been a long time ago, but like you saying that right now, it didn't even take me a full second to fully agree or realize that like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I could totally see this movie being called escape from Mars, complete the snake Pliskin trilogy. Right. Yeah. I think what I read was that that's initially how it was conceived, but maybe because of the studio or, or the production company that was involved in the making of the first two movies, that was just not something that was open to them. I don't know. I don't think it had anything to do with Kurt Russell not wanting to do the movies. Um, oh, I forgot about this. Maybe it's because, um, wasn't Escape from, what the second escape movie didn't it flop? 
Oh yeah, big time. <laughs> that movie is a glorious mess. Right. Um, so I yeah. think that was the reason why they were like, we don't want a third escape movie from you. Right. And so they changed this to uh, Ghosts of Mars. So they get to the mining town, but everyone's gone. Silent you Hill style. You could say it's a ghost town. <laughs> Like, I like that fade where they show the fade of the town being busy and then they fade back. And it's like, yeah, the town is full the of dissolves. ghosts. You like the dissolves. The dissolves work for you. But I it's can an tell acquired you taste. It's an they acquired do not taste. work for me. The, the first I watched this movie twice for the podcast uh, and because I loved it so much the first time. But I agree. The first time I was like, what is up with all these dissolves? But then the second time I was thinking like. Yeah, it just allows us to, because this movie is all over the place. There's flashbacks within flashbacks. There's different points of view. And by using the dissolves as their default cut, when they use the wipes, it really does a great job of going, no, now we are here in the story. So by, by using these dissolves and by cutting from dissolves from like them walking down the street, like, why do you need to dissolve from them walking down the street or even just entering a tiny hallway? It's this idea of something is out of place. Something is not right. This is a dream feeling. If she's kind of high a little bit through the movie, this is like you're 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 kind of drawn. You're, these characters are being pulled forward. Like, you know what I mean? Instead of pushed forward. This isn't about propelling the action this is about inviting you into the mystery so i agree that it is i don't know i wouldn't know how to make it work work for for major audiences but i think the dissolves it's not something you normally see and it's extremely well used from a cinematic textbook point of view but yeah it is weird (laughs) Yeah, it's weird and and they're they're trying to figure out what's going on mm-hmm. with the town by searching it. Uh, Clea Duval tries to phone back to the train, but significantly she can't get a signal back to them. Uh and uh what is it? Uh Jericho and Ballard have kind of this flirty interaction. And then they, I think they go to the prison and they find Dr. Braddock. Yeah, the Uh, prison's empty. Yeah, the prison's empty except for Desolation Williams. But they find a few people just around, including the suspicious Dr. Braddock, who at first wants to act like she doesn't know anything about what's going on. And eventually that we, we learn that uh, what happened was the um, the miners found this underground doorway that it was created by the Martians. And when they open the door, it releases their spirits or ghosts. And those ghosts then take possession of the miners. So they're fighting an invisible enemy. One thing I do want to point out that I think is extremely important is okay. the fact that when they go into the cave, the the Martian-made cave, and then they go up to that wall. It looks very phase four. They, yes, they don't open the door on purpose. They see a wall, 
she touches the wall to be like, wow, there's markings in a wall here. And the moment she touches the wall, it's like a booby trap. It's like a screen. It's like, you know, when they show you that IMAX screen and they light it from behind and they're like, see, the screen is really see-through. It's it's like that. The, the wall dissipates and that sets off the booby trap. It's a very, I think, important distinction that a movie like Prometheus could learn from. Because in mm. Prometheus, the guy, the first thing the biological science guy does is stick his finger in the mouth of a space cobra. Like, that's such a stupid thing to do. But the plot requires it. But, but isn't in- an alien movie if you aren't sticking your <laughs> finger in a vaguely vagina-shaped orifice? Right. <laughs> uh, so I think I think that's a smart idea because it puts all the blame on her without making her dumb. Right. It it gives her something to bear for burden. It's like, I did this. I destroyed the town. I unleashed this ghost cloud. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, what, what did you do? You touched a wall. Anyone would have done that really. Right. And, and I, again, I like that we get the, um, the resident science fiction doctor character is a woman and, you know, the scene where she's describing the plot of the movie and they're just talking with each other is, again, an example of women having conversations that have nothing to do with any of the particular male characters. Everybody's just doing their job, yeah. um, which is why, actually, the fact that there's a little bit of romancy stuff later in this movie made me a little bit angry because it was like you were doing so well until this dumb point that needed did not need to happen. Um, except if it had happened with Desolation Williams, which is the person she had chemistry with. Anyway, that, that's a whole other thing. This is a She-Ra complaint, a very, <laughs> a very uniquely, uniquely She-Ra complaint. Um, so once the miners become possessed, not, it's not so much, they're not only just zombies, but they are possessed with the souls of these Martians and the Martians then make them self-mutilate um, and get all punk rock Mad Maxi uh, in addition to their garbled alien Martian speak. <laughs> I, I, again. It sounds like we're joking, but that's actually what he sounds like. I I have I have so much to say about this movie. I think the garbled I did like- baby... <laughs> I did like the aesthetics, like the like the character designs, the makeup, the stuff that they did to make them look like crazy Martians. Yeah, it's it kind of like, like the Cenobites. Yeah, no, it was kind yeah. of like the Cenobites fucked the Mad Max people, right. and this is what came out. Yeah, I um, but for the speech, the garbled baby talk, the Goo Goo Gaga talk. It's it is weird because when we when we first see it, it's silly and stupid. But then later, when we cut back to a, a whole line of them on the ridge, and he starts doing his shouty baby talk, and he's like, ah, bah, 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 bah. it's like, holy shit, these things are massive murder maniacs, but also, like, it's, it's weird that it's intimidating and scary that these murder machines are also People. so primitive that they don't have an advanced, they don't have a, a system of writing, so to speak. They don't have a system of direct communication. They don't have language. All they have is screaming and killing. And that's all they want to do is kill you. There's no reasoning with them. There is no reasoning. 
So I like no, that. not at all, not at all. And and we really learn this as things go on. So the doctor gets murdered. Uh, Ballard is assuming command. She doesn't want help from Desolation at first. Um, very war- wary of trusting him. Uh, and they find out that simply killing somebody who is possessed just releases the spirit so that it can inhabit somebody else. So they're really, you know, fucked either way. But they decide that they can blow up this nuclear reactor, very sci-fi, to get all of the possessed people at once. Well, that's after they get out of town. They first have to get out of town. Really? This so this summary is all all messed up. But um, in, in fairness, though, the movie is all over the place. It's very confusing. But before they can come up with the actual final final solution, no pun intended, uh, they end up. You know, like Brett has described, they're in the jail. All of the crazies are outside. What are they going to do? Uh, and it's just them against the miners. And then it seems like Ballard has gotten possessed by one of the Martian spirits. Well, and they decide to just kick her out. Yes. Well, what else can you do? Uh, first, we we do have the scene of um, Pam Greer in that one place with all the dead bodies hanging upside down mm-hmm. that are beheaded, which looks so cool because it's like purple and yellow. And again, very jollo. This movie's super jollo. Um, yeah, it reminded me of uh, was the Jamie Curtis boat movie. Oh, Virus? Yeah, the, the People Workshop and Virus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, that totally makes sense. It's like body horror and mm-hmm. mutilation, and yeah. Um, so then, once that whole thing gets resolved, and, and the the police force kind of reunites, um, Pam Greer has gone off. Jason Statham has gone on to find her. By the time Jason Statham gets back, he now has a crew of misfits with him that turn out to be Desolation Williams's posse. So mm. again, this is and very, his brother and his brother. So this is very um, this this is essentially assault on precinct thirteen. I was going to ask you that: <laughs> is this assault on precinct thirteen in space? Yes, it's assault on precinct thirteen meets uh, Escape from New York. So the the bad guys take over for the good guys. Then the bad guys go in the cell. The lady slips out of the cell before they notice. Then they're trapped. And then the lady's like, get your dogs to stop barking. So the lady and uh, Natasha and Ice Cube start talking. And then they're like, listen, because there there is a lot of like, dude, you guys just need to team up. <laughs> like, well, can't yeah, you see what's going on? It's where we're going. <laughs> but then fine. I do like how there's this like chest puffing machismo. Like, even though... You know, it's just about, like, who is the one in charge? Who's the one who's best suited to keep everyone else in line and use the resources available? And there's two head honchos, so so they go at it. And then he's like, yeah, let's team up with them. So he tells his guys, he's like, you know, hitting them and slapping them upside the head. And, you know, when he's like, any questions, the guy raises his hand. He's like, put your hand down. That was so great. Like, he's like, no, we got to team up. 
And then there's the great part of, I mean, if you've seen the movie, you know, of the guy who's on the laughing gas and he cuts off his thumb. And I like that <laughs> because he was also trying to look cool in front of that right. hot chick. Yeah. So it was cool because does not do again, that like kind of machismo, like I'll do it for you, honey. And she's, she's obviously a badass who can take care of herself, but then he falls over and he's like, that's what you get. Dumbass. But essentially they have to leave the oh no you're right uh, so she gets possessed they kick her out and then they give her the drug that causes did her they give her the drug or did she just was she on drugs no so so it's weird because when desolation williams takes natasha uh melanie to hold her prisoner he grabs her necklace but it's it's a weird cut because it happens so fast. So so Ice Cube grabs Natasha's necklace, and then Clea Duvall grabs her throat because she just had a knife at her throat. So it's a really weird moment of like, wait, what just happened? But then Desolation now kind of has a connection to her. So he like he's like, hey, this is hers. Gives it to Jason Statham, and he's like, you know what this is? This is a stash. This will fuck with anything in there. Puts it in her mouth. Boom. Oh, that's how it happened. Again, yeah. I really don't like that this movie tried to push Jericho and Ballard as a pairing when it's it so. It, no, but they did have this weird thing where he was flirting with her, and okay, then it sure, seemed like they were had, about to fuck. If and you then had twenty four hours left to live, what what is one yes, of the most I common? Would fuck I would fuck Jason Statham, of course. Right. So I think the idea is that he's kind of this sleazeball who's this typical hero. Like, he would be the typical hero of the movie. But it's so obvious that she's supposed to be with Desolation Williams. No, 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 no. So then when he finally proposed, when he's like, hey, this is a really cool spot. And she's kind of thinking like, wait, what, to hide out? And he's like, no, to get it on. And she's like, you know what? Yeah, this isn't a relationship. This is just a fuck. They just want to fuck, but right away. It's just kind of a way for the genre to play up. There's a lot of like little things in this movie that are just twisting the genre on its head. It's just, I think this is definitely meant to be a silly moment. If this movie, which it should, this movie should have had a sequel, at least even a straight to DVD low budget bootleg sequel. Like Smoking Aces has a sequel. The Descent has a sequel. Like, all of these movies have who, sequels. Who thought that Smoke and Aces needed a sequel? I would totally watch it, but my brother watched it and he was like, eh. Mm. Well, um, so, so but she, in the sequel, save the relationship between Desolation Williams and Mel for the sequel. Okay, well, we'll we'll talk about it when we get into the rom-coms. Right. Um, but so she, Jason Statham feeds her the pill and it seems like Ballard is going to get possessed but instead she has a crazy wacky trip where she has a vision of the ancient Martian Martians in their true forms. And is it just me or did those Martians just look like big penises? Yeah. it w- They ran out of money or something. <laughs> it, it's a, heads, they just look like dickheads. Literal like, dickheads. It looks like a PlayStation two cut scene. It like it looked really bad and weird, and also I don't know if the um if those Martians are like the true spirit or if the the mist like if those were also an invading species that the mist took over. I think there's some interpretation there mm-hmm. that could be up for interpretation, <laughs> but 
Um, but yeah, she gets cleared of her visions and myths. So now she kind of understands the enemy, which is, of course, mm-hmm. is like, hey, they want to kill us. Like, oh yeah, no shit, Sherlock. I did like the sequence of her getting back in and yeah. coming back as this newly enlightened person who knows the answer to what the Martians want. And so everybody she, gets- Yeah, she makes that grappling hook out of the sword. She's a fucking- Badass. Ballard is awesome. I I do like I do think that Ballard is a meaty character. Um and and I I yeah, I like I like again the women in this movie, there's a lot there's a lot to appreciate. Um so this is where the movie gets really confusing for me because they make it out of there. They get onto the train and that's when they have this conversation about okay they're going to just keep on coming and if we don't finish this right here no no no, no. okay right so now. so they get to the train and then the train's not there so then they have to have a giant fight scene where desolation williams is like we should have done what we should have done oh, is a this long where time he, ago this is where he dual wields the pistols yeah. he dual wields the pistols runs into the crowd there's a big fight scene a lot of them start dying off and again john is carpenter is clea duval's head gets decapitated or is no, that later that is later but this, this again is like a very, you know, uh, the brain and Adrian Barbeau and stuff from Escape from New York and some of the people in, in Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, John Carpenter does a great job of like, this isn't Predator. This isn't uh, Rampage when they send the, the super team to kill the wolf in Rampage. Like, this isn't a movie full of extremely macho men doing extremely macho things. This is a movie where like, yeah, a weird homeless guy in this strange badass chick and a scientist lady have to like team up. And what sucks is of course they're going to die, but it's like normal people dying for a greater cause. Like it's not like this is, you know, the cops, you could say like, this is what you signed up for protect and serve. Or something. It's like it's kind of tragic in a way, in in the sense of like these people were locked up and then surrounded by maniacs, and then they were forced to just fight to the death. And that sucks. But yeah, then the train comes, they leave the train successfully. She stops it and says, you know, we gotta do the the We gotta go we back. We gotta go back. Why do sci-fi movies do this, Brad? Because it's awesome. <laughs> uh because yeah she's like listen what would be the best way to get rid of an aerial born virus uh, a nuclear blast radiation would probably be the because not only would it kill the hosts it would kill the ghosts so that is an extremely good plan and all of them are in one central location so like that's actually a super good plan and i like how the plan they kind of like they speed their way through it. They basically cut out the first half of their mission impossible plan and just get right to the fuck up where the, the big daddy Mars Martian is like, Oh, right. sees them. I love that, that moment. It's kind of a callback to later when Jason Statham ducked into the thieves out hideout. And they're like, did they see us? And that one Martian pauses, looks directly at them, then walks away. And the guy's like, they didn't see us. And so it's kind of, I like that sort of spooky, ethereal, uh, supernatural ability to be like, I see you. It doesn't matter where you are. I see you. Um, so yeah, they, they escape. The bomb goes off. 
most of all of them are dead except for Desolation Williams and Mel. Right. So it's kind of, you know, it's a, it's a good movie twist or, or again, a, not a twist because we all saw it coming. It's just we're filled with dread not being able to stop it. But it was always meant to have just the two of them be the survivors. Everybody had to go. Uh, and they they went in a spectacular, a spectacular fashion. Uh, I like that with Clea Duvall. She's with us the entire time, but she's gone in a second. It's like off with her head. Yeah. Moving on. And she's got a, a good little mini arc of being like frozen in fear. And then at the end, she's got her pistols and she's headshotting and blasting. I like that cut of there's a lot of great cuts that I can't get into specifically because we're going. I'm spending a lot of time on this, but that cut <laughs> where, where they, they see her holding the gun at the door and then you hear the banging again. It's like, Oh, the one thing that I did want to say the, the best cut of the movie is I think, or one of the best cuts is, I don't know. Mel is talking about some crazy thing and it's like, Holy shit. Again, we ramp up the batshit craziness so much. And then we cut back. Like we're always doing this back and forth. So she describes something crazy, right? And then they cut back to the lady who's giving the deposition or whatever. Right. And she's got this look of like, what the fuck? And I think the power of the reaction shot is so underused. You know what I mean? Like people just throw out reaction shots willy nilly. But to save your reaction shot for a moment like that, where it's like we, the audience, are in a mode of like, what the fuck? How are they going to get out of this? And then we cut to her looking like, what the fuck? How did you get out of this? So, yeah, there's a lot of great cuts. Um, but I mean, yeah. I guess that's a, you know, when you talk about the frame story like that, it makes me think, okay, there is some use to having a frame narrative. Right. Um, I mean, it's something that often gets used in literary fiction to make yeah. it seem more, you know, significant, but... Yeah, I would agree with you if it was a bookend narrative, right? Sometimes you mm. have that bookend where it's just the beginning and the end, but it's not. They keep cutting back to it right, to right. de-escalate the tension while while allowing us to, like, the fact that all this is being retold allows us to get some of that clunky sci-fi exposition out of the way. Um, I'll tell you what movie also does this, which is one of my favorite horror movies of all time, is Frailty. Frailty yeah. relies on a frame narrative, too. Uh, so anyway, we, we get to Last Men Standing. It's just Desolation and Ballard. And we get a final boss fight on the train where each of them has to take out their own crazy people. And it ends with this kind of mellow and sweet back and forth between them while Desolation Williams tends to her wounds. But it ain't over yet because she finds out that he has handcuffed her to the cot and he's getting the fuck out of there. He's, you know, at the end of the day, he's still a criminal and he's, he's going to go about himself. he's out for himself. But that doesn't mean that this is the last we've seen of Bal of uh, Desolation. No, no, no. Because... After the whole deposition, Ballard goes back to her cot to recuperate. And when she wakes up, who is there but Desolation Williams with a fucking gun? And he's like, let's go. Or what? you tell me what exactly he says. Because no, 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 no. you know. 
So, the, so one of the things that I love that that really defines a Brett movie, the ultimate de- definition of a Brett movie is that the movie is for fans of that movie. This isn't for fans of sci-fi. This isn't for fans of horror. This isn't for fans of John Carpenter movies. I mean, it is, but if you're a fan of ghosts of Mars and you rewatch this movie, there's so many awesome moments like where Jason Statham is looking at all those scissor tools and stuff. And then the guy attacks and they fight. Like there's so many moments that are like, fuck. Yeah. Like we like, it's it's ramping up the tension to be scary if you've never seen it before. But if you have seen it before, that same ramping up of tension is now repurposed as being badass. Because we know that the tension is going to explode in a cool fight scene or a heavy metal music video. Or in this case... Yeah the camera zooming in on the thing we expect maybe to see a Martian or big daddy Martian or something, but no, we get desolation Williams. Fuck. Yeah. He's got two giant shiny Uzis. I like that. He came back because he knew he he knew that he had a good co-op partner. Right. And so, yeah, he throws her an Uzi. And then unfortunately they have two, like we've talked about rom-coms, especially from the older, the older school of thought rom-coms where they have like, um, was it Lady Eve had one of those great last lines? Mm-hmm. Um, we we know the the best one probably. They tie, right? a, they tie a bow on it. I think that the best one of the old generation is obviously nobody's perfect. From yeah, that's what I was like going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So nobody's perfect is is the classic. It's the 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 be all end all. But in this one, they go, you know, you would have made a good criminal. You would have made a good cop. Nah. That's where the movie should have ended. But then he's like, let's kick some ass. It's what we do best. Like, no, end on the nah. <laughs> yeah, they like, should have ended on the nah. But I think maybe they didn't because that would have made it too silly. I don't know. But I, was, I, I, I wouldn't have minded if they leaned into it. If but yeah, that it has a is very... the deciding factor of what makes this movie too silly. That is the the wonkiest Jenga tower I've ever seen of a movie. It is a very demon's ending, which I find that I I've, I want to put this in a separate category from the uh, the bummer ending. So there's the bummer ending, like the alternate ending of the descent, where it's all hope is extinguished from this point forward, and it's very it's truly a bummer ending. But what you get with a movie like this or a movie like Demons, it's the pressure continues. Like it, it's not so much as man, what a bummer. They they weren't able to to stop the maniac Martians. Right. It's like no, you're not done. But you're also, never gonna be done. Like in demons, when that fucking helicopter crashes through the. I do roof like when stuff. the helicopter that crashes was nuts. through the room. But in this, what, what I like about these are you're right. It's like these are are specifically isolated battles that are. Like there are battles where the escalation ramps up to a point where you go, what could possibly happen next? And then the movie goes, you know, what's going to happen next. They're going to fight an entire war. And you're like, yeah, like I like this. If this is just the battle, what is the war going to look like? Oh, yeah. I think they would have had if they I mean, if this movie hadn't flopped and and they had an opportunity to create a sequel, I would have loved to see 
romance with Ballard and Desolation because Definitely. these are the two characters that need to be together, not her and Jericho. Uh, and also more crazy Martian uh, costuming and yeah. styling. Yeah, I totally agree, man. I love... H.R. Geiger could have had a field day. <laughs> I love pretty much everything about this movie. Although, like I said, it does feel dated. It does feel clunky. Um, it, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know what to say. Like, this is one of those movies that I unfortunately have to kind of cautiously recommend to people where I'm like, listen, I loved it. I think there's a lot to love about it. I think if you watch it, hopefully you'll find something to like about it. But I don't think you're going to enjoy it as much as I do. But also this is like this is kind of like the hitcher or something else where it's like 90 minutes and they jam pack. I think the framing device allows them to do this. They jam pack a ton of stuff in 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they definitely do. So any final thoughts before I ask the question? I, I guess the final thought that I have is just uh, we've seen Carpenter do this before. We, we we specifically saw it in Halloween when Jamie Lee Curtis is looking out the window. Laurie Strode is looking out the window in high school and she sees Michael Myers by that car out there. And the, the voiceover from the teacher is talking about fate, right? Fate is an immovable object. Fate is this, fate is that. This movie feels like the same thing. The fact that we have the framing device, the fact that we have the fades, uh, it all kind of leads to this idea of fate and this idea of this supernatural force that is pure evil. All it wants to do is drive forward and destroy. It's very Michael Myers. It's very... Uh, John Carpenter. And it's very, it's like Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness is another John Carpenter movie that is, I think people hold it, uh, it's it's much more of a higher cult status movie than Ghosts of Mars. Uh, but it's still not a very mainstreamy, widely accessible movie. But in that movie, they talk about Satan being like a virus and the code. It's kind of like Pi, that remember Darren Aronofsky's first movie where it's like, oh let's use the Bible as a number So triggered code. by you bringing up Pi right now. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like, yeah, let's mix science and supernatural in a way that is like philosophically interesting so i i do i think this movie is crazy awesome and i think carpenter knows his way around complicated shit to make it both um entertaining and frightening so i love john carpenter man (laughs) i do love john carpenter and i also appreciate that john carpenter isn't just a visual artist but has an understanding of how key a great score is to a movie he's you know he's a composer as well i think that he has a very holistic understanding of what makes an entertaining and fun and interesting movie uh so gotta ask the question who'd you have a crush on you know i'm gonna go ahead and because because I'm just so in love with this movie, I'm going to give you two crushes. My first crush is going to be the train conductor's assistant. What? <laughs> when he comes up and he says, here's your coffee, two sugars and a dash of milk, just like you want. Like, it. you want anything? And she's like, no. And he's like, all right. And he leaves. And I kind of was like, 
this guy's a dick. Like, what was like, what was his attitude with Natasha? Like, what, what is up? But then you don't see him for an entire movie. And then when we do see him near the end of the movie, he's like in go mode. His job is to run the train and he is running the train like a pro. He's all, he's flipping, but I mean, he's a background actor, but he's flipping buttons. He's looking panicked. He's ready to go. He knows his job. I think that that like that tiny, tiny, tiny little role is so it's, 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 it's the tiny details that make a movie like this, but also dude, the big daddy Martian <laughs> is his design, his football padding, his, his his axe and he his was sword great. he and when he cra- again like the helicopter crashing through the ce- the ceiling and demons when they cut when they do that really cool job where they go through the hallway and they do their like clear clear and they reload and stuff and the ghost mist can't catch up to them because they're in the hallway they shut the door and they're like okay we're safe no he crashes through the ceiling and he's like final boss fight and you're like yeah so yeah he's he is like you know the the bad guy we don't need three-dimensional bad guys in this movie we just need a terrifying presence and that is exactly what he is uh when the when they have the battering ram and he's just walking in front of it like a badass it's like fuck that's awesome man uh how about you who is your crush I mean, other than all the wonderful things I said about Buckethead earlier, <laughs> I really, you know, I fell hard for Ballard. Again, yeah. I think that complex and strong female characters, they help other women. And, you know, her and Pam Greer are kind of guides for Clea Duvall uh, and yeah. helping her be more confident in her role. And then, you know, she's not a perfect person. She makes mistakes. She does drugs. And and I I liked that about her a lot. Yeah. And there's like, they deal with homosexuality in a very blasé way. Like Where? Uh, Jackie Brown, Pam Greer is gay in the movie. And I think there's some subtext maybe that Clea Duvall, I mean, just knowing Clea Duvall, right? And what she brings to the table. I think there's some subtext there that Clea Duvall likes Pam Greer and that maybe she, you know, she looks up to her and maybe she, cause Pam Greer is kind of hitting on Natasha at one point. And Natasha says, I'm as straight as they come. She's like, ah, oh, such a shame. Um, but it's, it's like a casual flirting. Like we've been together a long time. Like, you know, if you ever want to come over to our side and she's like, Oh, you know, Oh, you, it's just people shooting the shit. But yeah, Pam Greer in this movie, super gay. I don't I just love Pam Greer in general. Pam Greer is an outside of this movie, just life crush. Um, (laughs) But inside this movie, I'm, I'm team Ballard all the way. I hear you. Yeah, she was great. So I think you should go first with your remake. I'm really curious yes. to know. <laughs> Let me go first because I, I have a feeling that, that yours is, is going to be the one, the one to hear. Um, so for mine, I called mine uh, Girlfriends of Mars. Yeah. So we've got uh, Earth in the 22nd century. James Desolation Williams is all set to tie the knot with his fiance. I don't know that his name was actually James or 
or it was actually Desolation. It's hard yeah, to tell. Yeah, it does have a, an actual name, James Desolation Williams or something like that, yeah. Right. So in my version, he's just called James because it's hard to have a romantic comedy with somebody named uh, Desolation. Yeah. Uh, so he's about to tie the knot with his fiance, but what she doesn't know is that he is an escaped convict from Mars living under a false identity. Uh, and sooner or later, James' old life comes crashing in, though his though when his fiance is kidnapped during their wedding cake tasting. The ransom note has just three words: "Return to Mars." It's like uh, John Kimball. Oh, not John Kimball. Um, it's like a uh, Total Recall. Get your exactly. ass to Mars. <laughs> Exactly. So he's got to get his ass to Mars. He's got to save his fiance and he's going to need help. So he calls up his old friend, Melanie Ballard. Melanie was supposed to arrest James on Mars and bring him to court to face justice. Instead, they had a fling and escaped to Earth, but it didn't work out because Melanie has a drug addiction. James, he heads over to Melanie's place in the crappy part of town. She opens the door and slams it in his face and then opens it again. You know, that old bit. Uh, And, uh, of course, she refuses the call to adventure. uh, And she says she's not going to do it. But then she agrees for a price and the promise from James that he will never seek her out again. Like, she's like, after this, I never want to see you again. And he says, fine. Uh, She doesn't actually want to reveal, though, that the reason she doesn't want to see him again is because she's still heartbroken over him leaving her. So she's acting all tough. Aww. Uh, And so this unlikely team then heads to Mars, where they run through the list of James' enemies. And, of course, all of those enemies happen to be his ex-girlfriends. So it's kind of like the Kill Bill of uh, ex-girlfriends. Kill Bill yeah. meets High Fidelity. There you uh, go. <laughs> so now we yeah, get kill a... List, top five, kill list. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So we get a series of vignettes where James and Melanie gather the clues to finding his fiance. So some spitballing ideas. Maybe Pam Greer as the awesome boss ex-girlfriend and maybe the gag is that James is terrified of her while Melanie is like, this is the coolest woman I've ever met yes. in my life. <laughs> yes. And then uh, maybe the next girlfriend, Dr. Arlene, is the scientist ex-girlfriend. And she's obsessed with cybernetic enhancements. And maybe James slash Ice Cube can give us a good funny line with, you know, it was over after she told me what she wanted to do with my... That's right. Uh, and then also we got uh, Clea Duvall, Bashir Kincaid as the hippie ex-girlfriend that maybe tricks James and Melanie into tripping or something. Uh, and so you get, you know, a series of vignettes that lead to clues to the uh, the people who took the fiance. I would say and- in the comedy, especially having a drug scene is great if you completely change the sort of style and genre and format of your movie right so if it becomes animated and they are you know they're walking around mars and they're cartoons or something like yeah that that's a that's a scene ripe with possibilities 
Like in Beavis and Butthead, do America. Never seen it. It's such a good movie. I've you never should. seen any Beavis and Butthead anything. You've never seen any Beavis and Butthead? No. no. I wasn't into it as a kid. I don't know. I was watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, even as a 15-year-old. Oh, gosh. Beavis and, <laughs> it, 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 after this recording, I'll send you the... Uh, I think my favorite clip from Beavis and Butthead and uh, chime in if you love this scene too is when they're in the wood shop and um, Beavis starts playing with the table saw and feeding different things into the table saw. And then eventually he cuts off his thumb with the table saw. It's just the way that it escalates. Oh God. The way that the scene escalates is just, well, perfect. You know, it's Mike Judge. Mike Judge is hilarious. Yeah, that's true. Um, so anyways, Beavis and Butthead aside, uh, James and Melanie, they follow the clues. While they're doing that, B-plot, Melanie's ex-boyfriend, Jericho, has become entangled with James' fiance, and they become an unlikely team uh-huh. against her captors. So you've got this sort of Midsummer Night's Dream set up where the people who are supposed to be together on paper don't match up, and the team-ups that are together now, the unlikely team-ups are actually the likely pairings that we needed all along. Um, so they get more intimate as they get closer to finding each other and it's, you know, leaving everybody all conflicted, but all ends well by the time we get to the final fight uh, and everyone ends up with who they're supposed to be with, with no hard feelings, James and Melanie, Jericho and the fiance. And then maybe at the end, when we get to the final fight, all of the ex-girlfriends show up with the Mars crew and everyone, you know, fights the bad guys together. Yeah. I, um, do you have a tag for the end of your. I, I don't have like a tag or, or a no, a nobody's perfect type of type of line. Um, but yeah, I lo- I would, I wish I had something clever for the end, like between James and Melanie, like, um, yeah, I never want to see you again on Earth because we're living here on Mars. I don't know. Yeah, I, I've got a good one for you, but I don't want to. Oh. Uh, well, you know what? It's basically the same as mine, but mine doesn't have any real significant value. You could have Do someone. It. You could have someone from like um, Saturn come to Mars, and then it turns out both Melanie and James dated the same person, and it's like <laughs> whoa, and it's like whoa. And then it's like trouble, like yeah. So it's a it's a final test of the relationship for that you end on. Oh oh, what if when they finally meet up with the fiance and the fiance is like Melanie, and it turns out that they hooked up a long Whoa. time ago. <laughs> Too much hooking up. <laughs> no, yeah, too too much untangling of entanglements. Uh, but yeah, girlfriends of Mars. That was my pitch. Very nice. Um, mine is kind of very visual, so I'm I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to blast the picture. It. But here we go. Mine are mine is called, and you're never gonna guess where this movie is gonna go. Mine is called Men Are From Mars. 
Oh no. <laughs> so we basically, why didn't I think of that? We basically have the same setup, which is Mars is now colonized and everything is going pretty well. So we have Mel, who is a matchmaker on Mars. And because, you know, if you're going to set up a colony, you got to have some people hooking up. And if you, you don't just want people hooking up, you want sustainable families. So you need a mm. matchmaker who's going to create families and colonies that stick together and don't just tear themselves apart. So Mel, Mel is a matchmaker. Uh, Desolation Williams's first name uh, I, I think it is James, but I just called him Will for Williams. So his character's name is Will. He is a relationship therapist. So he has oh. to try to Ooh. keep the couples related, like in together. But at the same time, here's the thing. Will thinks that Mel is making bad matches, but Mel thinks that Will doesn't know how to use what she's given him, right? She's given him the ingredients. She's given him the paints. Now it's up to him to, to make the artwork, right? She's, she's given him the tools he needs. So they have, they're at odds, right? Mel doesn't like Will. Will doesn't like Mel. Uh, Mel is also very optimistic when it comes to relationships, which is why she's the matchmaker. Will is very pessimistic. They're both single, so Will's very pessimistic because he people come to them with all their relationship problems. So he's like, yeah, relationships just don't work out. And Mel's like, you got to be a dreamer. Uh, she's the risk taker and he's the risk assessor. Yup. So they find an ancient wedding ring. Someone does. And maybe they bring in those two. Somehow we get those two together with an ancient wedding ring. And again, we don't want to make our characters do something stupid. So, like, I don't want one of them to put on the wedding ring because I don't want it to be her like, oh, I wish I was married. Let me try it out. And I don't want him to be like, oh, see how dumb this is? It's wedding ring. So what if he's the one who wishes he was married? Well, I was going to say an intern puts it on. (laughs) Like, oops. (laughs) Like, an intern's just like, oh, what is this? And the moment he puts on the ring, the ghost of Mars comes out. And so maybe the maybe he possesses the intern or he just has his own possession. I don't know. That gets a little creepy sometimes when you have people taking over other people and utilizing their body. Um, but the ghost is a guy and he's the last of his kind. So he's the last man of Mars. And in order to keep his ghostly genetic species alive, he's going to have to find a mate. Who better to find a mate than Mel? So now he's got to team Ooh, up with Mel to go on a series master. of dates. She's the gatekeeper. Well, so here's the thing, right? So he is a very nerdy, not self-confident guy. So maybe like Abed from Community. You know what Ice I mean? Cube? Like, no, Ice Cube is Will. So Will is the relationship therapist. Mm-hmm. But so the intern. The intern. I don't know who it is. It can be Jason Sotham or it can be someone who's got, I mean, Jason Sotham isn't nerdy, so that's a bad choice. But it's someone, someone nerdy who can play spastic and and squirrely uh, and nervous. Um, so he is also dealing with his past dating failures where he was unable to woo his mate. 
right? So now he has a, a confidence problem. So Oh, he's a Martian with a complex. Yes. So now not only does Mel have to set him up on a series of dates, but Will has to give him therapy to try to overcome his anxiety of having to impress these women, right? Because the stakes are high. If he does not impress a woman and bed her, and create a child, then his entire race dies. So the stakes are high. You know what I mean? Um, so as he goes on the dates, we get more insight into Mel's happiness. But, and, and Will is not around for the dates. But, or no, 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 I'm sorry. Will is around for the dates. So it's Mel and Will kind of chaperoning the dates. Like oh, off and to they're the kind side. Of, they're kind of having their own little date. And they're while like they giving, chaperone. yeah, they're giving little commentary. Like, oh, he should have done this. Like he should have held the, pulled the chair out for her. And like, no, that's old school or you know, just whatever. Uh, but then when they're in the um, therapy sessions, Mel is in the waiting room. So when Will is giving the ghost advice, we start to learn a little bit more about Will and where his pessimism comes from. So at the end of each session, when they go into the waiting room, it's very that old feeling Dennis Freed and Bette Midler were like, Mel will give a barb to Will. And normally where Will would give a barb back, he doesn't. Because now we see that her barb actually cuts him kind of deep. But he's gonna, you know what I mean? But he's like, mm-hmm. I'm gonna play it like, I like, I just don't even want to do that right now. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like a cool dynamic of while they are antagonistic, the antagonism kind of becomes the way that they bond because as she makes fun of him more and we learn about him, we learn that like, oh shit, that's not that funny. You know what I mean? But at the same time, they can still be antagonistic over trivial things like who's going to open the pickle jar or something, something dumb. But they're not malicious anymore. Right. So uh, then we go to dinner. I don't know the dates. I don't know the Also, all that second act stuff of just the dates and, and whatnot, all the hijinks of the dates. I don't have that plan. But we finally go to a final dinner and... The ghost storms off because he says, you know what? You guys should do what your heart. Oh, also, we want to um, we want to make it clear that when the ghost is on the dates, his end game is not only to 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 wed and bed a, a lady to 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 further on his species. But he just wants a, a sunset date with a, a lady. Right. He just wants to be in a bench or to be in a park on a bench at sunset on Mars and to have a nice romantic night. So that's Aww. what he's, he's trying to get every woman to go to the park with him, but no woman will because all the dates go wrong. So Will says, you guys need to do what your hearts tell you. I'm going to do what mine tells me. And what he basically says to Mel and Will is you guys need to hook up because you guys are perfect for each other. So you guys figure it out. I don't need your help anymore. I'm going to leave. So now we get this idea of, you know, in rom-coms, usually you have to have the big split before they come together. So in this moment, they kind of, Mel and Will are kind of split in the fact that they're like, we don't belong together. But then they take their time to talk it out and go, shit, we actually should be together. And so then they kiss. And then there is a big bright light that blasts through the ceiling 
and then it's an extremely violent uh, light and the ceiling explodes but then instead of all the debris falling down on people and like them panicking as the debris of the ceiling explodes it like dissolves into mist so it's kind of like snow right so it's kind of like snow so we get this snowy christmasy magical atmosphere it better be sparkly and it's not sparkly and then Damn it. And then the light fades and everyone's looking around surprised. And then a a more gentle, softer light comes down. That's like a more focused beam of light. Mm -hmm. And then as that light comes down, there's sparkles that come down. Ah, okay. There you go. There's your sparkles. We got to wait for it. And then a being appears out of the light. And the being is, of course, a gorgeous woman. And she turns out to be a Venusian. Someone from Venus, and she is oh, the last women are from Venus. We, women are from Venus, so she's the last woman from Venus. And they're in, <laughs> and Venusians are so in tuned with love, and those and Mel and Will's kiss was such a true love kiss that it beaconed her to them. And they're like, you know what? If you're the last woman from Venus, boy, do we have the man for you. So now they have to go and find the ghost from Mars. And so they're driving all around and they're trying to like, oh, let's go to this. I don't know. Let's go to this like arcade that he likes. No, he's not there. Let's go to this baseball card shop he likes. He's not there. Let's go to this restaurant that we took all of his his dates to. No, he's not there. And then they go. She goes, oh, you know, the sun's getting real low, big guy. Avengers or whatever. But she's like, hey, the sun's getting low. We're running out of time to find this guy. And then they're like, sun sunset so they drive her they do a mad dash to the park they find him at the park and then the martian and the venusian look at each other and then again you know how we're trying to make this about like this is one of those movies where mel and will are giving him advice on how to act to impress women what he really needs to do is be himself right so in order so in order to be himself he looks at the venusian and he's so overcome with love and true love that he does this goofy dance where he's like his arms are waving and he's making goofy faces and then he stops he goes full tex avery yeah and then will and mel are like what the fuck is that and then we cut to the venusian's reaction and she's like what the fuck is that but then she's like and then she like mirrors it back so it's like oh yeah you just need to be yourself they're both goofy they're both silly that's how you attract your mate and then they kiss and then five years later, we cut to, like, they're on Neptune, and both couples have kids, and their kids are playing Aww. with each other and something. But That's cute. Yeah. So it's um, it's a good hijinksy movie that has, that has a satisfying ending that kind of comes out of nowhere. I like it. Yeah, very um very adversarial unlikely team up of yeah, matchmaker and relationship therapist who both dislike each other. I like that your movie also featured two couples. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, the one couple at the end is sort of like the the payoff couple. But yeah, Will and Mel kind of learning more about each other on these dates and through the therapy sessions and yeah. I like that a lot. The more couples, the better. Well, actually, I think two couples is the maximum amount of couples that can be tracked in a single feature film successfully. 
uh, three in, in one. Oh, that's right. They do give us three. Yeah. It's not that it can't be done. <laughs> it's just hard to do well. It is hard to do. Speaking of doing things well, it would be well of you to follow us on all the social medias, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can email us at necromancerpodcast at gmail.com. I am here for all of your thoughts on Buckethead, <laughs> Butthead. Beavis and Buckethead. Beavis and Buckethead, whatever whatever you want to share with us. So please like us, subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Now then, let us get into Love Bites. Well, so another movie that I've been meaning to rewatch lately uh, since it, since I saw it when it first came out is The Man with the Iron Fist. I'm sure you know all about this movie, Shira. It is the is this a kung fu movie. Yes. It is the RZA's very first movie as a director, maybe a writer too. Eli was it Keanu involved? No, not Man with the Iron Fist. Keanu was in The Man of Tai Chi. That was Keanu's directorial ah. debut, which is a great movie. Um, so this is the RZA's movie. We all know the RZA likes um, martial arts stuff, right? Wu Tang Clan, also a great composer. Yes, and so. It's got Russell Crowe, it's got Dave Bautista, it's got Lucy Liu, it's got a couple other people in there, and it I is like all those. It is a good. It, it's a it's a good movie if you're a martial arts fan. If you're not a martial arts fan, I'm going to say steer clear of it. Who's watching the Riz's movie? Who hates martial arts? I don't know. But what's amazing is I went on to HBO Max to watch this. And under the special features, they have an unrated version. Normally, when you see an unrated version, there's not that much of a difference, right? Sometimes you get a director's cut that's like the Snyder cut or Ridley Scott director's cuts. You're like completely different movies. But in this movie, again, I've only seen this since it came out back in whatever, 2012 or whatever. And from what I remember, these two movies are basically completely identical. Watching the unrated version doesn't change the content of the movie from a narrative standpoint. But if we're going to tie this into Ghosts of Mars, uh, Greg Nicotero did the special effects for both movies. And the unrated version of Man with the Iron Fist is one of the best, like, volume turning up of the gore in a in a movie that I've seen because the violence in the unrated version is just so much more it has so much more oomph behind it like I don't okay, know I why like they oomph. I don't know why they took out all the violence because this movie Ghosts of Mars had dead people hanging from ceilings with no heads it had mutilation it had decapitations heads on the plates. art direction was great the violence in this movie was nuts. And like, I, that's why I also like midnight meat train. Cause midnight meat train had bodies hanging from the things getting cut open, blood spilling on people from. And they were corpses. also shiny. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know why more movies just don't like, if you're already rated R go for it. So the movie is very silly, but I think Russell Crowe gives a crazy fun performance. It's got a cool little mystery behind it. Uh, the fight scenes aren't as awesome as they probably should be, but that's also if you give the RZA enough money to make a martial arts movie, there's probably not going to be enough time to 
really hammer out the martial arts scenes, but the character design in all of the relationships between like there's double crosses and triple crosses and stuff. The, the clans, the, you know, the tiger clan and the lion clan. I like it. And, yeah. So it's a lot of really cool stuff happening. And if you're into martial arts, if you're into the RZA, I would definitely check it out. Very violent, very fun, very silly. Good stuff. Uh, how about you? I'm curious to know if you you had a book, didn't you? Are you going to recommend that book? Isn't there a Martian? Um, well, I never book? I never read The Martian. Actually, I'm going to pull a Brett move and recommend something that's not a book, a movie, a game, a soundtrack, or band. I, since this is unlikely team-ups, I would like to recommend working out with your partner or best friend. So late, I mean, in general, I, I, I like going and lifting with my friends and, and it's really Sonia who gets me into the gym each week. Uh, but my cardio is somewhat lacking. So I fulfilled one of Doug's great wishes uh, which is that I work out with him. And so we have been doing burpees together where he'll do one burpee and then I'll do one and we'll proceed till I'm so unable like a little, to do little Ren and Stimpy, happy, happy, joy, joy. Like don't they, but, but with more sweating and, <laughs> and cursing. And right. I, I, I actually think that it's an enjoyable activity for us to do together. So I think, you know, doing something physical with your partner or with a really good friend, it might not be the team up that you thought about, but I think it's worth doing. The only downside to, I think, working out with your partner is Doug has been telling me that I have weird jumping jacks and he'll do impressions of my movements, which I think are not at all accurate, but that he insists that this is the way that I move. So yeah, I have to endure a lot of teasing from him while we work out, but it just motivates me to work harder and prove that he's wrong. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Sonia has roped me into some rowing. Uh, so every Monday now I've been going to rowing with her and it makes her super happy. I mean, it's nice. It's nice to do exercise. Yeah, I get it. Mental health and physical health and exercise, whatever. But it just makes her so happy that I go to rowing once a week. It makes Doug happy that I do burpees with him. I think that, you know, doing physical activities with your partner, like I said, it may not be the team up that you were thinking of. But it'll be more fun together than apart. Very nice. Yeah, I second. I second your love bite. Awesome. All right, team. Time to break for now. Or or wait, what? Go ahead. Or as Big Daddy Martian might close out the podcast with...
Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.